there is a burgeoning Facebook campaign that has swelled over five members. The ardent demand that this week at the Fall Homecoming Assembly, the McKinley High School Glee Club perform a number by, wait for it, Ms. Britney Spears. You know, Spears, Spears, yeah. If you've just stumbled upon this podcast, or if you take a quick scroll down the contents of my blog at medusini.com, it won't take you long to discover that I have a lot to say about Britney Spears. Of course, many of my discussions about the Princess of Pop have related to her recently won legal battle against her conservatorship of 13 and a half years. Being a Britney stan over the last three years has been exhausting. But my Britney obsession started before I was even really a stan of hers. In college, I was a film major, and maybe that makes sense with my personality in the worst possible ways. But I wasn't the most ambitious film student from like a production standpoint. A lot of my peers had specific projects they liked to talk about and things they wanted to someday produce while I was content writing essays on the gendered implications of Mary-Kate and Ashley movies, but there was one hypothetical project that I became completely obsessed with midway through my collegiate career. I really wanted to write a movie about the life and career of Britney Spears. When I first decided this, I wasn't a huge fan of Britney's, nor was I all that familiar with her work. I knew all the hits, of course, plus a few more obscure album tracks since I was always checking in on the main pop girl releases from time to time. But my sudden interest in Britney had more to do with what I believed she represented. Even if I wasn't a stan quite yet, Britney held a special place in my heart as one of the first pop albums I ever owned as a child. Some Christmas, I received Baby One More Time along with Christina Aguilera's self-titled debut album and listened to both obsessively on my portable CD player. Later, I got Oops, I Did It Again and became similarly hooked. Maybe the reason, though, I didn't follow Britney's career as closely afterward the way that I did with, like, Hilary Duff or later Lady Gaga was because of my age and the exact time period that I came to adolescence in. I read somewhere that seven years old is considered the age of reason in children, where kids start to develop a stronger sense of identity, as well as basic common sense, a rough moral conscience, and a broader understanding of the world around them. Baby One More Time was first released when I was three years old, I'm sure I was a little older when someone actually bought me the CD, but probably still around five or six. By the time I was seven or eight, when Lizzie McGuire was my one true queen, I remember hearing a lot of anti-Britney rhetoric. It was the mid-2000s and other kids my age frequently mocked her, which makes sense in retrospect now that I know how the media started portraying her around 2002 and the years following. It wasn't cool to like Britney anymore. Once I started middle school, Britney was in the midst of what's become known as her breakdown era. I still remember seeing the talking heads on TV insulting her along with the media spectacle of her new hairdo. We will turn now to the story that is burning up the internet. Absolutely. It's burning up the water cooler talk. It's Everybody's just burning this morning. It. Yes. Britney Spears. She's bald. Yeah. 
we've got this. But I wasn't old enough yet to fully contextualize the madness. So around 2015, in my sophomore year of college, I started thinking more and more about narratives and general themes that could be found in contemporary pop culture. When I thought of Britney Spears, I thought of two things. One was an image of a 21st century pop star that was simultaneously specific and indefinite. Britney's public persona became such an archetype for a new millennium female pop star that you could see Britney's influence in every main pop girl act that followed her. But in the early days of her career, her style was so prominent that smaller pop acts of her time were basically attempting to be a Britney replica. Or an anti-Britney. making her artistry feel more like the industry's blueprint for trends than the outcome of a particular artist's vision. She was like a children's cartoon's distilled version of a 2000s pop star, perhaps akin to a popular Nickelodeon show's conception of a superstar. Hi, I'm Puppy the Britney Britney. These are the Britney Britney dancers. The other thing I thought of was, unfortunately and unsurprisingly, how Britney also embodied the idea of the celebrity train wreck, going from a shining girl next door turned superstar the public adored, to a constantly lambasted trailer trash slut in the public's eye with untreated mental health struggles. I was fascinated with how that narrative developed, not just for Britney, but for us. Why did we as a culture find so much glee and entertainment in tearing one woman down who never really did anything wrong? You know, apart from a few traffic violations. So I started constructing the Britney narrative, piecing together both what I could learn about her personally, along with what I could gather about the media's ever-shifting portrayal of her. Specifically, I began collecting tabloids with Britney on the cover in order to organize what the trashiest magazines were writing. One of my favorites is a 2006 issue of Star Magazine, which claims that Kevin Federline was trying to get custody of the former pair's two sons by arguing that Britney was bisexual and therefore unfit as a mother. If that claim is true, then K-Fed also deserves some criticism, but Listen to what Star writes about their court battle. Kevin told his lawyers he wants Britney investigated for neglecting the kids while she's been out partying in LA and Las Vegas with Paris Hilton. Another source says that Kevin also suspects Britney and Paris may have done more than just hang out together. He thinks they may have messed around, kissing and getting undressed in front of each other, the source says. Kevin has seen what he calls Britney's lesbian tendencies before. He followed her to a gay bar where he saw her dancing with other women and kissing them. Brit's first husband, Jason Alexander, has also said Brit found other girls quite attractive. This blurb is situated within a larger article about how Britney, quote, can't stop partying, with the implication that she's unfit as a mother as if her sexual orientation would have anything to do with her nightlife routine or her qualifications as a parent. 
Kevin Federline isn't maligned for trying to paint lesbian tendencies as a reason for reducing his ex's custody rights. Instead, he's celebrated as a great guy who underwent a devoted dad makeover. From reading this article, we learn less about Britney Spears herself and more about how people in the mid-2000s thought it was appropriate to talk about women expressing any kind of sexuality. The deeper I fell into the Britney rabbit hole, especially once I began learning about the conservatorship and developed a huge amount of empathy for her situation, the more I started to stan her. So by the end of 2016, when Entertainment Weekly published an article called Every Britney Song Ranked, I had a lot of blossoming opinions about Britney's discography. I was so horrified by Entertainment Weekly's ranking that I started structuring my own list of Britney tracks ranked from worst to best, creating a document with notes that went far past just a simple list of songs I liked the most sonically. I realized while putting the list together that what I was actually trying to do was construct the Britney narrative in a non-chronological format. Deciding which songs would get crowned as Britney's best was really an avenue for me to organize all of my thoughts about Britney's career and public image. I've had this list ready since about late 2016, early 2017, but until now I never had a platform to actually talk about it because I honestly didn't make it for anybody else except for myself. But now I have a podcast where I can take all of my internal ramblings and make them into content. Plus, Rolling Stone did a Britney song ranking a few weeks ago, and I disagreed with that one too. So why not just lean into my argumentative instincts and proclaim my own opinions on what songs, in fact, reign the Britney Spears canon? That being said, I should stress that my list is not really ranked in order from worst to best. Since this was mostly an exercise for me to consider Britney's narrative for my non-existent Britney biopic, which I absolutely can manifest into a real screenplay if Britney Spears is listening and interested, though to be honest, I'm leaning a little more toward a mini-series rather than a feature-length film, but we can talk about it later. The ranking of my list is a little more conceptual. There are three things I've taken into consideration. Number one is just basic aesthetic appeal. If I personally liked a song, it had a better chance of getting placed closer to number one because in any project I would make about Britney, obviously I'd want to highlight the songs that I think are genuine bops rather than the ones I think are just kinda meh. So my individual taste is absolutely a factor here, but this is certainly not a mere ranking of my personal favorites. I'd say the top five aren't at all the tracks I listen to most often in my free time, because the second factor I've taken into consideration is how much impact a song has had on Britney's career and public image. For this reason, singles are obviously going to be at an advantage compared to lesser-known album tracks. I'll warn you right now, Toxic is in the top 10. I know Britney stands are sick of hearing about Toxic since it's the fave of all the... Locals? But it is a great track, and its popularity alone makes it significant to the Britney canon. 
And then the third thing I've taken into consideration is how much and what kind of meaning can be inferred from a song's existence in Britney's discography. This factor is harder to explain, but let me try. Questions of autonomy and control have haunted Britney's career since before her conservatorship or the Free Britney movement. Starting out as a literal child on the Mickey Mouse Club along with other platforms like Star Search, Britney came into the entertainment business under the legal restrictions of a minor. From Kentwood, Louisiana, here is 10-year-old Britney Spears. as a solo artist debuted when she was just 16 years old, and as I've already mentioned, her carefully crafted image quickly became the blueprint for a pop star of her generation. Today, such outrageous and immediate success for a musician might allow them to move into more experimental and personally fulfilling work. Especially with social media and music streaming, the biggest artists of today, Taylor Swift, Kanye West, Beyonce, etc., are pretty much guaranteed to make a substantial profit for any new release, whether it's in the style of their previous work or not. In the 2000s, however, the risks of letting an artist stray stylistically were a lot greater, and having come up as a teen who primarily performed other people's material rather than write her own songs, Britney in particular was someone that industry executives didn't always trust to go her own way as an artist. We as Britney stands spend a lot of time defending her from the accusation that she's a manufactured pop star, whose success was only contingent on her ability to follow other creative leads' direction, cause those accusations are, to be clear, completely false. Firstly, because they ignore her immeasurable and unique talents as a performer, which were already evident in her initial debut. Britney may not have written Baby One More Time, but Max Martin couldn't have given that song to just anyone with basic vocal talent and had it become a smash. Case in point, that clip I played at the beginning came from the Britney Britney episode of the TV travesty Glee, in which Leah Michelle, a certainly skilled singer and performer, performed a cover of Britney's debut single that is, without a doubt, the worst thing Glee has ever done, and I'm including the fake out school shooter episode. Oh, baby, baby, how was I supposed? Ryan Murphy not in prison. It's also worth noting that the iconic Baby One More Time video was, from all reports, Britney's idea, which the video's director Nigel Dick has publicly discussed. I wrote a treatment which she hated, and she said, I, I want to be in a schoolroom with a load of cute boys. So that was pretty much the brief. And, uh, you know, my initial reaction is, Hang on, I've got a 16-year-old girl telling me what to do. And then I suddenly realized, well, 
maybe the 16 year old girl has a better perspective on what she wants to she and her peers want to see a lot of the most acclaimed output of britney's career was a result of her own creative input making her artistic contributions to her so-called manufactured image extremely underappreciated Still, it's not untrue that Britney struggled to break out of the mold others wanted to keep her in. She spoke openly about arguments she'd had with her label regarding what to release and when, and said on multiple occasions that she was sick of being told what to do. As someone who values and wants to highlight Britney's personhood and how it manifests in her work, I took Britney's freedom of expression into consideration when making my list. Songs that I feel are representative for her as an individual, rather than the carefully crafted image her label expected her to work within, get bonus points, even if they're not generally seen as significant to the professional development of her career. So, those are the three qualifications I've considered when making this list, but I want to emphasize the latter two points, those being the significance of each song to Britney's professional narrative and the overall implications each song has for her personal journey, because both of those considerations implies additional context beyond just the individual songs in question. Really, I think that's only appropriate for the kind of artist that Britney is, She's a pop star, which means a lot of her appeal as an entertainer expands past the music in isolation. The iconography of her songs, being the various live performances or music videos that might accompany a track, is all a part of the music's legacy. So I did think about those things when putting together the list, along with any personal context of what was happening in Britney's life at the time. I say that just to clarify that there are many different factors at play here, so if a song that you like was put closer toward the worst end than you feel comfortable with, I'm not necessarily saying that I think the track is any worse than the others, unless I do actually use my mouth and say that. It could just be that the quote-unquote better songs have a richer iconography or mythos attached to them. Most people will probably still disagree with me in my placement of certain tracks, and that's okay because I know that I'm right no matter what. But one final note about the list, before we actually get into it. I want to explain why I've chosen the songs that I have. I know Rob Sheffield ranked 170 for the Rolling Stone listicle, including her Pepsi jingles or that Artists Against AIDS song she did, and I didn't include those. To keep it simple, every song I've included can be found on US Spotify. I made a playlist that I'll share once I post the final episode for however long this series takes. I'm thinking three episodes for the whole list, but we'll see. We're stopping today once we get to number 100. But the point is, there are like no international edition bonus tracks unless they were later added to streaming services. I'm also disqualifying any remix, unless said remix received a music video, or involves Rihanna. Those two exceptions. And I didn't include Britney's Christmas song My Only Wish, since I just wouldn't know where to start comparing a holiday track with the rest of Britney's discography. I also didn't include Matches or Swimming in the Stars, the reasons being, number one, I forgot. 
I already said I made this list originally in like 2016, so those songs weren't out yet. I had transformed the list into a Spotify playlist shortly after, so when Mood Ring was put onto streaming platforms in 2020, the fact that the track was already a fan favorite made me excited to add it to the playlist, but then when Matches and Swimming in the Stars were released, I just didn't think about it because who really cares? Which brings me to the second reason, that being, I'm still not sure if Britney wanted those songs released. They were added onto new editions of Glory when Britney was on a work strike in the midst of Free Britney's big explosion. To me, the songs never sounded totally finished, making me wonder if this was just a desperate attempt from Britney's team to milk her unreleased tracks for more money and or produce a distraction from all the controversy, while Britney was refusing to produce new material. Since Mood Ring was on other editions of Glory when the album was first released, I have reason to believe that Britney intended the song to be out at some point. For the other two tracks, I'm not so sure, so I didn't bother putting them into the ranking. What we're working with then is a list of 149 songs, but I'm gonna start the ranking off with what may be a bold move, albeit an understandable one if you've been a part of the Britney standum for a while. In a lump, I'm putting the entire Britney Jean album into slots 149 through 137. I've been thinking, just It's not because I think all the songs on the album are bad. A vast majority of them are, but more than that, it's because of what this album means within Britney's larger discography. So here's a little history lesson for those not in the know. In 2008, Britney was placed under a conservatorship, aka a legal guardianship, overseen primarily by her father and some other immoral fucks, whether officially involved with the conservatorship or not. Thankfully, that arrangement was terminated in November of last year after 13 and a half years of Britney quietly fighting it to no avail. Within those 13 and a half years, though, Britney released four studio albums, Circus, Femme Fatale, Britney Jean, and Glory. Exactly how much control Britney had over the creative process for each of those albums is mostly up for speculation, and I will speculate once we start talking about them. But it's generally accepted that Britney Jean is the least Britney album pretty much ever. Which is pretty ironic because that's definitely not how the record was marketed. You said it's your most personal album uh -huh. you've done. So, um, what, what are we going to learn about the real Britney from it? Well, the, song, the whole album is just, well, Will I Am actually co-produced it. But um, most of the songs are about celebrating, having a good time. You know, I went through a breakup with this record, so some of the stuff that I went through with that is on the record as well. So, but it's just fun. It's a, it's a fun record. Britney Jean was supposedly Britney's most personal album, and yet it reeks of Will I Am's influence way more than it does of Britney's. I'm not saying that to diss Will I Am in any way. He's always been supportive of Britney and spoke up in her defense during the Free Britney movement, so I'm sure he's a nice guy and Britney certainly seems comfortable with him on a personal level. But when I listen to a Britney Spears album, I want to feel like Britney Spears made it. 
And not only do I have some skepticism regarding Britney's co-writing credits on the Britney Jean tracklist, this album is infamous in the Britney standum for not even featuring much of Britney's voice. Instead, the lead vocals are more likely those of background singer and songwriter Maya Marie, something she's never really denied. Maya's dad told Star Magazine in February of 2013, quote, My daughter sings for Britney Spears. The truth is, Maya can sound just like her. She has a knack. Maybe Britney doesn't know whose voice is on her album and it doesn't even interest her. Maybe she just comes in, lays down the track, and leaves and doesn't care. Unquote. Maya's only response was to say, I most certainly cannot take credit for Britney's tremendous talent as a singer. But we didn't ask Maya to take credit for Britney's talent as a singer. We asked if Maya should rightfully take credit for the vocals on Britney Jean. And it definitely seems like she should. It's honestly a little upsetting to me that the album's leading single, Work Bitch, could become a pretty big hit without ever having the general public notice that much of the lead vocals aren't Britney Spears. I guess I can forgive everyone since that song is so heavily layered with different vocal tracks and some very distracting instrumentals, but listening to the vocal stems alone, you can hear the issue. Ring it on, ring the alarm, won't stop now, just be the champion. Work it hard like it's your profession, watch out now, cause here it comes. I won't say that Britney is nowhere on the track, she may have some sparse contributions mixed in with Maya's, but Maya is definitely the lead here. The rest of the album is mostly the same, Britney's voice is noticeable on Perfume, and there are other moments throughout the record where Britney takes back over, but there are also songs like Body Ache where I can't hear Britney's voice in the mix whatsoever. If you need an example of Maya's voice to support that this is her, listen to the RuPaul song featuring Maya Marie, where she's properly credited, and tell me it doesn't feature the exact same vocals as Work Bitch or the rest of Britney Jean. I want to make it clear that Maya Marie isn't the villain in this situation. She signed a confidentiality agreement while recording, so we may never get a full picture from her about what happened on this project, but I see no reason to believe that Maya was a part of the decision to use her vocals on the album, or if she even knew that's how they'd be used when she recorded them. I doubt any singer-songwriter would want to lead an entire major label album and not receive the credit for it. Hopefully she was at least properly compensated for her contribution, especially since some Britney stands have been relentless in attacking her. This Britney stuff is getting really annoying. I had nothing to do with this Swimming in the Stars song, um, and it's getting really hard to even be a Britney fan these days. Like, I have always been her number one fan. I used to make web pages about her. I was 10 years old. 
uh, went to her concert and met her backstage and she literally inspired me to have my whole career. Um, and I don't understand why everyone has to attack or throw hate on, first of all, something I'm not even involved in. Second of all, why? Maya doesn't have a totally clean past, though. In 2007, she recorded and uploaded a parody version of Britney's song, Piece of Me. I won't play her rendition because I don't think it was in good taste, but all you really need to know about it is that the parody song was called Don't Take My Kids From Me. I personally think it was a bit mean-spirited, whether Maya meant it that way or not, and the lyrics are all sorts of cruel. It's been taken off of YouTube, allegedly at Maya's request, after she DM'd the uploader, but nothing has ever really gone on the internet, and in a 2020 AMA, Maya addressed the backlash. Okay, so this piece of me <laughs> parody um, that I did 13 years ago, by the way. Um, so I was 17 when I did this. I did this before they hired me, you guys. I was doing parodies um, for fun because I was bored. I was a kid and I was making light of the situation. I'm a huge Britney fan. You guys know being in the Britney fandom, we all poke fun and we have fun and we joke. Come on. Just because I put it out, it didn't mean that I had ill intentions. If anything, I was making light of the situation and showing how ridiculous everybody was being. A parody is creative license. I'm a creative person. Her team didn't have a problem with it, obviously. So, you know, it is what it is. The, I don't apologize because I didn't do anything with ill intentions. I wasn't coming for her. I'm obviously a huge fan. We all say stuff. Britney fandom. So there's that story. Can everyone leave me alone about this? Daddy, chill. Again, I'm not trying to paint Maya as a villain. I wish she took a little more responsibility and acknowledged that the parody was a little over the line in some spots. But she was only 17 at the time, and she is right about stan culture sometimes being a little mean. Especially in 2007, when the whole world was already mocking Britney. I can see how a teenage Maya might not have found those jokes out of line. Still, it's sad to think about Britney having to go out and promote an album as being her most personal work yet, when the main vocals aren't even hers. They're that of a woman who made jokes at her expense when she was at her lowest point. Maya saying Britney's team didn't have a problem with it at the time doesn't really soothe me considering I don't really have warm feelings towards said team. And we still don't know what Britney felt about it, like many things. So, why wasn't Britney's voice used on her own album? I mean, I don't know, I wasn't there, but I do have a theory and it requires us to back up a little bit to the promo cycle of the album release two years prior to Britney Jean. In the year 2011, Britney's Femme Fatale album premiered to mostly positive reviews, it's sort of a fan favorite release today, and I say sort of because while a lot of fans appreciate the album as a collection of catchy pop songs, the era that surrounded it was a little more problematic. We'll discuss that more later on, but one thing you need to know for right now is that Britney's general demeanor took a turn during this time. In interviews and performances, she appeared stiff, anxious, and fatigued, 
leading many people to believe she was being heavily medicated. More on that later, but going off of that point, around this time, Britney's speaking voice became noticeably lower than it had ever been. And not just lower, but also a little strained. Good morning, America. I'm excited to tell you on Tuesday morning, March 29th, I'll be performing for the first time ever in a special concert in San Francisco's historic Castro District on Good Morning America. And I promise you, it'll be a morning to remember. See you soon. Would you hold it against me? This isn't a totally uncommon thing to happen to people on certain medications. If you're taking something that has side effects like dry mouth, the dryness in your throat can have a lot of adverse effects on your voice, especially if you're using it a lot. Say for instance, if you're recording an album or going on interviews to promote your album, or maybe working as a judge on a televised competition show, just, you know, for instance. By 2013, when the recording sessions for Britney Jean began, I'd have to assume that Britney's voice was just shot. A later leak of an early recording for the song Alien supports my theory. Uploaded on YouTube as Alien quote, no autotune, the recording features an off-pitch Britney who's straining her voice to be able to sing. The title is misleading. No autotune implies that the clip was the final version of the vocal performance used on the record, like this is what Britney usually sounds like without computer programs to assist her. But autotune is not a magic program, it can't transform any take into sounding like a professional pop song. Clearly, the leaked audio wasn't from anything they used on the final product. My assumption is that the damage done to Britney's vocal cords made her unable to perform as she had before. But the recording time for this record was relatively short, starting in May of 2013, then ending in October, with the album released the following month, so that in December, Britney could kick off the Piece of Me Las Vegas residency. Britney Jean wasn't just an album, it was promo for a concert residency, meaning the producers didn't have time to let Britney rest her voice. They had to put a record together quickly, and Maya Marie had already been working as Britney's backup singer and performing her album's demos since 2008. It was probably easier to just utilize the recordings they had already and mix Maya's demo vocals into whatever scraps they had of Britney's to finish the album in time. If this was such a rushed project though, why would they try to market it as Britney's most personal release? Because Britney's former team is both reactive and stupid. Though Femme Fatale was met with mostly positive reviews, the album received minor criticism for the fact that Britney didn't have a writing credit on a single track. Moreover, the album as a whole is a collection of catchy pop tracks that, while fun to listen to, were more trend-chasing and generic than exploratory and distinct. It lacked a sense of Britney's unique personality in favor of bops that a lot of singers working in pop at the time could have recorded without much difference. Realizing an impersonal album made Britney's team seem a little more suspicious given her conservatorship and the questionable control she had over her life and career, 
Team Brit decided to overcompensate by insisting that Britney Jean was a deeply personal album with Britney's name in the writing credits of every single track. Similar to how they handled Free Britney by staging paparazzi photos outside of a hotel to prove that Britney wasn't being held captive, Team Britney tried to find an easy out from looming backlash by faking Britney's involvement in her art, rather than just, you know, letting Britney have more involvement in her art. Recently, the podcast The Original Doll with James Rodriguez uploaded an interview with Britney Jean's songwriter and producer Anthony Preston. Being respectful to Britney, Anthony didn't divulge many specifics that would prevent Britney from getting to tell her own story first, but he did indicate that the album's recording process was much like fans have always assumed. The project was rushed, Britney's team didn't value her work as an artist, and the whole thing was low-key a nightmare. I recommend you listen to the whole interview, which is split up into parts across different episodes, to get a full picture of the situation, but here's a small snippet of something Anthony said that interested me. I remember, you know, even the day, like, with Hold On Tight, where she was like, um, I wrote a song, and I want to, you know, and I was like, well, let's record it. And she's like, we're not going to get in trouble. And I was like, how do we get in trouble? You're the boss. <laughs> like, like, I'm thinking, that's what I'm thinking to myself. Like, you know, how do we get, like, if, you, if you're in the mood to do this today, let's do that. And that was the genesis of the Hold On Tight song. If Britney was worried about getting in trouble for writing one of the songs on the album, I find it very hard to believe that she had the chance to earn every single writing credit she was given for this project. I know she didn't earn it for at least one song. I can't let go of control. I can't let go and I know. Don't know the way ahead of me. One day at a time is all I need. The track Passenger was co-written by another pop diva, Miss Katy Perry, who originally intended the song for her own album. So the song was written before ever being offered to Britney, who had no part in the writing process when it was still a Katy Perry track. Of course, Britney could have added to the song after receiving it, but Katy's original demo leaked online in 2017, and, um... I can't let go of control, I can't let go and I, I know, don't know the way ahead of me, one day the songs are identical. There are no significant changes between Katie's version or Britney's, so I don't see any reason to believe that this was a track Britney ever wrote a single line for. After the leak, I believe Britney's credit was actually removed on title. I can't check that myself because I am a poor bitch who cannot afford a title subscription, but I'll tell ya. Her name's still on Spotify's writing credits. I'm putting Britney Jean into the worst category because the whole album and era just makes me too sad not to. But honestly, it's not like every song is actually that bad. I mean, most of them are, so it's not a huge loss, but I'll give a little nod of appreciation to a few tracks. Hold On Tight gets love for being the one song seemingly written in full by Britney. Let's take note of the fact, though, that whoever chose the tracklist relegated it to the deluxe edition only. 
Anthony Preston also claimed that Brittany wrote on the second verse of Alien, and in my opinion, Alien is the best track on the album. Brittany might even agree, as the I Am Brittany Jean documentary showed her quietly pushing for the song to be released as a single and put into her Piece of Me set list. It never was. God, I hate her team so fucking much. And then there's Perfume, which has some of the clearest Britney vocals on the album, despite igniting some controversy due to Sia's vocal contributions. And then also, Work Bitch is a bop. So all those songs can be closer to the best end of the list. I still don't love some of the production choices, but I have to assume much of those came down to the extreme time restraints. Whatever order the rest of the album goes in, I don't really care. But there is one song that is without a doubt not only the worst track on Britney Jean, but actually the worst track in Britney's entire discography. It's called Chillin' With You. I sang so loud that I smiled I made it worth my while That voice you're hearing there is neither Britney's nor Maya Marie's. It's that of the song's guest feature, Jamie Lynn Spears, aka Britney's younger sister, aka Judas Lynn or sometimes referred to in the Britney standum, Juno Lynn, but I think that's inappropriate. Do you worry that by speaking your truth that it will harm your relationships? Well, nobody ever really considered me, but <laughs> I think- We're considering you now, Jamie Lynn, and all the ways you betrayed your sister. Whatever. Before Jamie Lynn was an official enemy of the Britney standum, the closeness of hers and Britney's relationship was something the two often spoke about publicly. It's pretty cruel for that relationship to be exploited as a promotional gimmick on Britney's most personal album when it doesn't even sound like Britney is singing on the one song her sister is featured on. The lyrics as well are disingenuous to Britney's life, with the first verse Britney sings meaning Maya sings, referencing red wine, which we now know Britney was forbidden by her conservators to consume. Have I mentioned, by the way, that the track is also just plain bad? Let's escape the Britney Jean hell, though, and start venturing through the rest of the list. At number 136, our first non-BJ track will be unsurprising to many. It's is an ironic fave among Britney stands. it represents two issues in the Britney canon. The first is just bad songwriting, or really lazy songwriting. It's a common problem for Britney's first two albums, which operate primarily as homes for her early hit singles, made into full-length albums through the placement of filler tracks. Email My Heart was supposed to be filler, but the lyrics are so ridiculous, it's gained almost a cult following. Email 
even mean? Are we putting Britney's heart into an email, or are we writing an email to Britney's heart as the recipient? I don't know, and I don't think the writers do either. The second problem with the song is that it's pandering. Baby One More Time, the album, was released when Britney was just 17 years old, making teenage girls her music's target demographic. Every single songwriter on the album, though, was a grown-ass man trying to make music for an audience they couldn't relate to and didn't understand. Obviously, it's much farther down the list, but even Baby One More Time's title track is a representation of this issue. If you've ever wondered why the lyrics are, Hit Me Baby One More Time, a peculiar thing for anyone, especially a teenage girl, to say, it's because the line was written by Max Martin, a Swedish songwriter and producer. Since English isn't his first language, he mistakenly believed that Hit Me was American teen slang for Call Me, likely getting confused by the phrase Hit Me Up. The up is crucial. That song, then, is emblematic of the issue. Britney's songwriters were trying to appeal to the average American teen girl, despite none of them being teens nor girls, and many of them also not being American. With Email My Heart, the thought process was obvious. An adult man was trying to think about what a teen girl might think about and came up with boys in the hip new technology of the decade. Everyone um, has been doing emails, and, email, uh, and it's Email My Heart, so it's a... Uh, um, Everyone can relate to that song. It's a really nice song. It's like Ariana Grande singing a song called Snapchat My Tits. Though I would probably listen to that, actually. Moving on, we have a collection of random ballads that I just find boring and, again, filler-esque. At 135 Heart, 134 When Your Eyes Say It, 133 Where Are You Now, and then 132 Walk On By, that one's not a ballad, it's actually a pretty cute song, but a very obscure bonus track that doesn't have enough impact to have a chance to be placed anywhere else. And then at 131, Intimidated. This one is one of the most disappointing tracks for me, because I do think it has some very interesting and cool moments, like the somewhat industrial-sounding intro. But parts of the melody literally just dip outside of Britney's vocal range, making her performance sound super weird. Then on the chorus, she rhymes chance with confidence, making it confidence. And it, it's just not okay. Moving on, 130 Thinking About You, and in a special double feature, at 129 I'm So Curious and 128 Dear Diary. These are two of the first songs that Britney wrote on. I'm So Curious, a B-side of the Sometimes single, is superior sonically. It's got some bop qualities, but I just think the lyrics are underdeveloped. For it being a song about wondering if someone you're in love with loves you back, curiosity is just too casual of an emotion for the song to feel really heartfelt, 
but not quite silly enough to feel purposefully ironic. Dear Diary, on the other hand, has a more cohesive lyrical arc, but the song itself doesn't sound like anything other than a teen girl's first attempt at writing a sappy ballad, so at least it's authentic to Britney's life at the time. Then at 127, we have a track that was already kind of boring to begin with, but soured even further by a later context of events. I Will Still Love You, featuring Don Phillips. Earlier, I hinted at acknowledging Britney's brief stint on the short-lived reality competition show The X Factor, where Britney was a judge for the contestants' talents as singers and performers. Like Britney Jean, The X Factor is a bit of a sore subject for Britney stands. She didn't always seem happy or even comfortable being on the reality show. Adrian Bailon of The Real once claimed that Britney's lines were fed to her through an earpiece. I honestly don't doubt that, not only because coming up with witty retorts on live TV is hard, especially if you have anxiety, but because Britney didn't really seem the most present during the show's filming. Yet again, we have a suggestion of Britney being on heavy medication, likely experiencing adverse side effects like drowsiness and lethargy. In 2021, fellow X Factor judge Lewis Walsh told the Irish Independent, quote, I was sitting with Britney for two days and after a few auditions, she would go, unquote. The piece's authors describe Lewis's mimicking action as him slumping over with his neck flopping in his chair. Lewis goes on to say, quote, They would literally have to stop the show and take her out because she was on so much medication and other stuff. I felt sorry for her, unquote. There are two things that I should acknowledge here first. One is that it's not any of my business what medication Britney is or was on, if any. Two is that there's nothing wrong with being on any medication if it's what someone and their doctor believes is right for their situation and treatment plan. However, during this time in 2012, Britney was still under the conservatorship of her father, meaning that he had final say over her medical care, including her medication. Legally, a guardian in a probate conservatorship is not able to force their conservatee to take any medication or receive any treatment they don't want to receive, but a guardian or conservator does have the right to make other key decisions in their ward's life, including in Britney's case the custody and visitation rights Britney had with her two sons. Multiple people, including Britney, have alleged that custody of her kids was held over her head any time she acted in defiance to her conservator's demands. So while Jamie Spears couldn't legally force his daughter to take whatever medication he and the doctor he hired wanted her to take, he could use other rights and privileges in her life to coerce her into compliance. So that's one thing to consider. Was Britney always on medication she thought was right for her? Or was she sometimes on medications that just made her easier to handle for those that managed her schedule? The other thing to consider is that schedule, which Britney's conservators were also in control of. It's fine if Britney needed to be on certain meds for her health plan, but if those meds are making her so fatigued that she can't sit through the filming of a TV show, why were her conservators putting her on a TV show at all? 
That's majorly irresponsible at best and downright greedy and cruel at worst. What's also cruel is what happened during one of the audition rounds Brittany had to sit through while taping. So I Will Still Love You is a song from Britney's debut album released in 1999 and it features a singer by the name of Don Phillips. I don't expect you to know that name because Don didn't quite hit it big like Britney did. So in 2012, while Britney was a judge, he appeared as an auditioning contestant on The X Factor. It was not a comfortable scene. Don't cry. No, I'm fine. I never thought I'd see you again. Aww. You know him? I know him. From where? From Eric Foster White. I used to record with him a long, long time ago. Seriously? And, like 10 years ago, and he was... I did a duet with Britney. Yeah. And what happened? At the time, I just... I wasn't... I didn't feel like I was worthy. I didn't feel like I was okay. And I wasn't truthful. Even with Britney, I was scared that she, she if she knew me, that she wouldn't like me. Even though I sang the song with her, I, was, I never let her know me. Don't cry. No, I'm okay. Don had clearly struggled with substance abuse and mental health problems since his duet with Britney. And while he looks to her for approval during his audition, his voice isn't really what it once was. When he's told he won't be advancing to the next round, he sobs backstage, specifically upset that he feels like he's disappointed Britney. It's not a fun thing to sit through, but when Don comes out on the stage as gay, expressing his fear that Britney wouldn't accept him, we do get this soundbite of Britney being an LGBT icon. I think it's fine you're gay. Of course, it's a reality show, so who knows how much of it is real? But Don's reaction is too messy and upsetting for me to think that he was in on any stunt. Brittany also seems surprised to see him, though she does recognize him quickly. Who knows if she was reminded by someone in her earpiece, though. Regardless, the episode was cruel to both Don and Brittany. Don was clearly unwell and not in a state to be put on TV as a failed X Factor audition, and Don's search for Britney's approval put her in an uncomfortable position being asked to validate a mentally ill man she hadn't seen in over a decade. So fuck whoever greenlit the idea to stage this moment and let it be aired on TV. Next up at 126 through 123, one Kiss From You, I'll Never Stop Loving You, When I Found You, and That's Where You Take Me. Counting the Don Phillips track, that's five songs with the word you in the title in a row. I didn't do that on purpose, I promise. But all these songs are early career Britney when the writing for her music was a bit more audience-centric. By that I mean the lyrics were crafted specifically to be relatable to listeners, not to express any singular point of view. It makes sense then that a lot of the lyrics were written in second person because most people can relate to the experience of pining after a modifiable you. At 122, we reach a track that many people would have put closer to the worst end of the list than I did, but like Marie Kondo, I love mess. Big fat bass, the big fat bass, big fat bass, the big fat bass, big fat bass, the big fat bass, big fat bass, the big fat bass. So 
yeah, this song's not very good, but it's also not boring. Big Fat Bass has got like a camp appeal to me. It's mostly a disaster, but it's a disaster in a fun way, so at least I'm entertained. This also gives us an opportunity to talk more about Femme Fatale. Reminding you of the timeline, the album was released in 2011, about a year prior to Britney's X Factor gig. Like fans were concerned by Britney's demeanor on X Factor, many of her performances and public appearance during Femme Fatale's album cycle were similarly lacking in energy or any discernible enthusiasm. Some of Big Fat Bass's performances were the worst, like on Jimmy Kimmel Live or Good Morning America. And although the track was released an album prior to Britney Jean, its Will I Am production and feature makes it a sort of preview for issues to come. Even Britney's vocal performance is lacking. It at least is her voice, but it sounds like a tepid first take that Will I Am overprocessed to fit into a Black Eyed Peas track that Fergie didn't want to sing on. Did you know, by the way, that Fergie left the Black Eyed Peas in like 2018? No offense, but like, to do what? Anyway, Big Fat Bass is bad. Will I Am seems like a nice person, but I would like it if he never touched a Britney track again. Then at 121, another infamous track for the Britney standum, this time for peculiar lyrical decisions. Tiny hands. Yes, that's you. That first line gets a lot of attention, but it's honestly nowhere near as bad as a following confession. I smell your breath. It makes me cry. My baby gets some shit for that first verse, but as the song moves forward, the rest is not nearly as cringe. And unlike most other songs where Britney sings about her baby, she doesn't mean a nameless lover this time. She's singing about her actual babies being her two sons. As someone that doesn't care for babies all that much, the song's not for me, but as a sentimental ballad from mother to child, it is sweet. And we have to give it some credit as well for being a song written by Britney for the two people she cares most about. It is an authentic expression above all else. Then at 120, the answer. This is the section of the list where pretty much every song is something that I would and do get down to even if they aren't particularly memorable or have had no lasting impact or significance to Britney's career. The answer is a good track for sure, but it's weighed down in the ranking by the fact that it wasn't on a standard album release and, as far as I'm aware, Britney has never so much as acknowledged it. Then at 119, a song with which we can continue our discussion about Femme Fatale, Trip to Your Heart. This is one of the songs on the album where I do really like it, but I can't love it for one particular reason. The melody is catchy, Britney's performance is appropriately light, yet also aloof enough to make her sound like a flirty fembot, which is complemented well by the heavy effects added to her vocals. But the instruments are so early 2010s electro dance pop 
that it comes across as cheap and dated. It's one of the many Femme Fatale tracks that I'd love to see remade with different production. In fact, I think it's a perfect candidate for a hyperpop producer to do a collab with Britney, which I've been fantasizing about ever since I learned what hyperpop is. Next up is a Baby One More Time triple threat that may or may not get me cancelled. So, 118 deep in my heart, 117, Autumn goodbye, and 116, I will be there. Look, I don't know how Autumn Goodbye got such a cult following, but she's just not that girl for me. I'm sorry, this is my list. You can make your own. And then 115, a regrettable entry due to the sheer talent involved, but I have to give it to the S&M remix by Rihanna featuring Britney Spears. Nah, 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 come on. A collaboration between these two should be absolute gold, but this remix is unfortunately just okay. Britney's vocals sound like she's fighting off a cold. And the entire venture felt a little half-assed, especially the cover art for the single where an outtake from Rihanna's loud photo shoot is pasted diagonally from an outtake from Britney's Femme Fatale photo shoot. Femme Fatale, by the way, already featured Britney's worst cover of her entire career. Now, Rihanna and Britney did perform the song together once at the 2011 Billboard Music Awards, but the appearance was similarly underwhelming. One thing I do love about the remix, though, is that Britney's verse is by far the dirtiest in the entire song, which was already about kinky sex. Britney's credited as writing her own verse, and I see no reason to doubt the validity of that credit due to my knowledge of Britney's writing skills, but I still have to take any credit from around that time with a grain of salt since her team was so untrustworthy and odd. Which actually brings me to number 114, He About to Lose Me from Femme Fatale. This is a weird one because while Britney's vocals on the verses are some of the most raw for the entire album, it's definitely not her singing on the chorus. There's no one credited as a feature, and it doesn't really sound like Maya Marie, so I honestly don't know who the fuck this is. Whatever. At 113, Can't Make You Love Me, a bop. 112, Don't Keep Me Waiting. 111, Ooh La La. Which is arguably Britney's worst single, but it's a soundtrack contribution for The Smurfs 2, a kids movie Britney was able to take her two sons to the premiere of, as well as have them appear in the song's music video. So for kid-loving Britney, it makes sense. And 110, a song other people would've mentioned earlier, everybody. <laughs> Okay, yeah, it starts with an air horn, and it's a kinda cheap rendition of Sweet Dreams by Eurythmics, but what can I say? I like trash. 109, From the Bottom of My Broken Heart, 
And at 108, don't hang up, which is living in the same liminal space as the answer. Both fantastic tracks relegated to an in-the-zone bonus release that barely anybody knows about. The next two songs have a similar dilemma, though they're both bonus tracks from Britney's self-titled album, 107 I Run Away and 106 Before the Goodbye. And then for 105, the list's first appearance of a full cover song. When I first heard this song, I knew I had to sing it, so this is for you, Cher. few things to say about this one. First is that this song is at the center of one of Britney's strangest live performances from the 1999 World Music Awards. Britney stands in the center of the stage wearing a long black wig as dancers move and throw scarves around her. It's weird, but Britney's vocals are on point with a rare break from her signature baby voice. We still wanna hear a brand new thing, uh-huh. The fact that this Sonny and Cher cover was on Britney's first album as well, when it wasn't a song her core demographic would likely recognize, is an underrated testament to Britney's respect for the legends that came before her. On the Baby One More Time tour as well, she performed songs from Madonna and Janet Jackson, probably her two biggest influences. Britney might have come onto the scene as a minor, but her instant stardom wasn't accidental or surprising. She had a tremendous amount of talent for sure, but she also had an ambition that could be noticed just through her reference for the pop stars that paved her way. Britney knew who to model herself after, and that's a key aspect of her early success. She wasn't aiming to be a teen pop sensation, she was aiming to be within the ranks of classic pop acts, like the unstoppable Cher. The lyrical changes from Sonny and Cher's version to Britney's are also illuminating, as Britney, or whoever worked on the cover, adapted Sonny's lyrics from the broader social commentary to a tongue-in-cheek acknowledgement of teenagers' reign over pop culture and pop music. I know I put it on the worse, for lack of a better term, end of the list, but again, I'm considering a lot of extra context for my ranking, in truth, The Beat Goes On might be Britney's most underrated cover. Then, coming in at 104, Pretty Girls, a collaboration between Britney and rapper Iggy Azalea. What can I say about this song that hasn't already been said? The collab is pretty infamous as a flop, which ignited a sort of feud between Iggy and Britney, or maybe just Iggy and Britney's team. Despite the two having chemistry together on stage and in the music video, and Britney once raving over a salad she had at Iggy's house, Iggy seemingly tweeted some shade at Britney a few weeks after the single's release. When a fan tweeted Iggy to say the song, quote, flopped a little bit, Iggy responded by saying, It's difficult to send a song up the charts without additional promo and TV performances, etc. Unfortunately, I'm just featured, dot dot dot. When fans interpreted this as a dig against Britney, Iggy responded to the emerging backlash, tweeting, My comment is factual. 
It applies to any song. I don't have to suck the woman's asshole 24-7 to be her friend, do I? Bye, girls. Britney's Twitter account later tweeted, Can't wait to get back to Vegas. So thankful I have shows for the rest of the year to look forward to. Hashtag, you want a piece of me. This was seen as a response to Iggy, who had just canceled her upcoming tour due to low ticket sales. Did Britney actually tweet that indirect shade? I have no idea. She didn't control her social media at the time, so anyone with the password to her accounts could have written it. In the last year, Iggy has given subsequent statements clarifying that her issue had always been with Britney's team, whom she spoke out against after Britney's June 2021 court testimony. According to Iggy, Team Khan coerced her into signing an NDA before she'd had the chance to review it, micromanage Britney's life, and wouldn't allow Britney to have more than a set amount of soda. Even back in 2015, she told Andy Cohen that Britney's team had had Iggy's house searched before Britney was allowed to come over. Iggy, when Britney was promoting Pretty Girls, she said she came to your house for salad. She mentioned this salad in numerous interviews. What the hell was in the salad? <laughs> I didn't know you she did. What was she in did the have salad? A salad. You know, uh, nothing weird. Nothing weird. She right, actually, they came and like checked my place to make sure I like wasn't trying to like stash anything weird and like give it to her or something. Give her something weird? And then I was like, weird? it's just salad. Oh, <laughs> um, right. So I'm so, glad she liked it. Wait, Brittany had advanced people come scope out the place? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, to make sure I wasn't like a bad influencer. Wow. Iggy and Brittany have since expressed love for each other on Instagram, making me wonder if their feud ever involved Brittany in the first place or just her team's bitter ass trying to speak for her. As far as the song goes, it, it's a song. Moving to another collab at 103 Scream and Shout, Will I Am featuring Britney. Of all the Will I Am Britney collabs, this is by far the greatest. It still prompted some controversy, though, kind of similar to Britney Jean. The singer Tulisa co wrote the original demo of the track, but the producer Lazy J gave the track to Will I Am, who rewrote it, but Tulisa's contributions weren't completely removed. The line Britney sings in a British accent, for instance, was written by Talisa, a British singer. When you hear this in the club, you gotta turn the shit up. You gotta turn the shit up. You gotta turn the shit up. When we up in the club, all eyes on us. All eyes on us. All eyes on us. Talisa, however, was left off of this song's writing credits. In fact, she wasn't credited for the song at all, despite her original vocals being included in the final mix. In 2012, Talisa filed a lawsuit against Will I Am and won 10% of the publishing rights in 2018. That incident doesn't directly involve Britney or her team, but it still implies some fuckery that surrounds her discography, which implies general fuckery in the larger music industry outside of Team Con. And at 102, someday, in parentheses, I will understand. We'll talk more about this song when we discuss the EP it lives on in a future episode, but it's significant as an individual track for being a ballad that Britney wrote for her then-unborn first child. It's like an ode to pregnancy, and for a family-centric person like Britney, it's a lovely expression of genuine passivity, even if I personally think babies and ballads are boring. 
Speaking of boring, the final song for the list this episode as we approach the top 100 is number 101, Shadow. I wish I had more to say about it since this sort of is the finale of this episode, but I really don't care about ballads. It's probably about Justin Timberlake though, and that man's gotten away with way too much shit for way too long, but more on that later. So until next episode, goodbye!